Hello and welcome back to the SportsBall.com podcast. I'm your host, Jackson Williams, and uh, this is episode number eight, and we've got a lot to get into today, so let's just jump right in. Um, so I want to start this off, like we always do, talk about the recent Warriors action, because uh, they're the best team in the NBA, and my favorite team, but uh, those aren't really related, because I'm from the Bay Area, as you all know. But uh, so since we last talked, they've played three games. Um, their first game was against the Wizards. They beat them 109 to 101. Um, now, full disclosure here, I couldn't watch the game. I had to take a test in one of my classes here at school. But I, I watched all the highlights and looked at all the game summaries, so I have a pretty decent understanding of what happened. But uh, So basically, they played really well in the first quarter. Uh, they led 36-21 afterwards. Um, it was, I think it was probably their best all-around first quarter of the year, or in a while at least, if we're being honest. But um, in the second quarter, the score completely flipped. Uh, the Wizards ended up outscoring the Warriors 35-22, to so it was nearly an exact... An exact flip, or however you want to say it. So uh, at the half, the Warriors ended up having a two-point lead, 58-56. Um, then the Warriors exploded in the third quarter, as they normally do, and held the Wizards to just 14 points while doing so, and they rode out the rest of the game as you would expect them to. Um, Kevin Durant was the leading scorer for the Warriors. He finished with 32 points and 12 for 20 shooting. Um, Steph was the next highest scorer with 25, but uh, he, wasn't, he, wasn't, uh, he wasn't great. He only made one shot that wasn't a three, uh, he did it on. He made all his shots on five for fifteen shooting, but uh, the reason he had twenty five because he he did manage to get to the line twelve times and he made it made the free throw uh, eleven of those twelve times. But uh, one of the key factors from this game was that Andre Iguodala was very solid again. Uh, he had fourteen points. He's been very solid since the All Star break, which is a great sign because his ability to do it all on both sides of the court is really important for the Warriors in the playoffs. Uh, yeah, he's, he has not had a bad game since the uh, All-Star break, but we'll get into, into more of that later. But um, the Warriors' defense was excellent outside of that first, after that second quarter. But uh, perhaps the most impressive thing they did in this game, defensively at least, was that uh, they managed to hold the Wizards' only All-Star, Bradley Beal, to his first scoreless half of his career. And uh, that's pretty impressive because Beal's just been on a tear um, this year as of late. And... Uh, yeah, but this was a good win. The Warriors, uh, they'd been rolling as of late, and they, they'd been doing the a lot of their winning without John Wall, who's their quote-unquote star player. Um, it's going to be interesting when John Wall actually returns because they've been playing so well. And uh, several other players have been, like, subtweeting him or throwing some subtle shade at him while he's been out, saying that they've been moving the ball around a lot better. But, uh, yeah, they've just been, they've been rolling as of late. I don't know. What are they? I think they're, like, third or fourth in the east no they're i think they're fifth um but it's gonna be interesting when he comes back seeing uh how it how the team can really manage around that if he's going to disrupt the flow and they're going to go back to being what they were because they weren't that great when he was playing yeah they're in fifth um yeah but so the warriors beat him 109 to 101 uh the next game the warriors played they beat the atlanta hawks 114 to 109 um, the Warriors did not play great defense in this game's first quarter, uh, but they still led afterwards, which was nice because, as we all know, because I've talked about it like a hundred times at this point, that uh, the first quarter for the Warriors have been their weak point. Um, yeah, but they still led 33-31. Um, you know, I'm starting to suspect that the uh, Warriors' first first quarter of struggles uh, aren't really so much a reflection on them, more so as a reflection on uh, the respect that they give the, uh, their opponents. Because, uh, I don't know, it just feels like the other teams just play way above what they can actually do. 
in the first quarter, and then they're progressing to the mean in the second, and especially into the third quarter because that's when the Warriors explode. Um, but that's why the Warriors can hang on and win, come back and win a bunch of these games. This is because they're playing way the teams are playing way above their means. But uh, anyway, I got sidetracked. Um, the Warriors didn't build their lead in the second and third quarters, but the uh, the Hawks actually made a really late run on the back of Kent Bazemore, who was he was really good. He had 29 points. It was career high, career high, 21, 29 points. Um, his uh, his teammate in the backcourt, Dennis Schroeder, also had a really good game too. He had 27, uh, three of which came on this absurd half-court heave. It was very similar to that one Steph had the other day. I can't remember who they were playing. I think it was like two weeks ago, but he just threw it up from half-court. I think he banked it in. But it was still pretty impressive. Um, the Hawks came back nearly all the way. Um, they were only down like three with like 45 seconds left. But then Andre Godala stepped up. He had a perfectly timed dunk and steal to seal, dunk and steal to seal the game for the Warriors. But yeah, he's he, again. He's just been great recently. He's been doing it all, which is it's really nice because he's showing signs of playoff Andre Godala, or at least finals like he was last year, at least in Game Five. Um, but yeah, Steph and Katie both led the team with 28 points in this game. Steph had his 28 in just 23 minutes, so it was slightly more impressive. But uh, Steph only got to play 23 minutes because he rolled his ankle in the second quarter. I think he landed on Zaza, if I'm not mistaken. Ha-ha! That's why uh, you can't get mad at Zaza for all that stuff happened with Westbrook the other week because he does it to his teammates, too. We we all suffer through it. Um, But yeah, so he rolled his ankle, and then he had to leave the game. He ended up coming back in the second quarter and played a little bit into the third, but then he was taken out as a precautionary reason. I had no problem with it because he's had ankle problems throughout his whole career, and especially this year. But then Katie also had 28 points. More of his points were in the second half. Um, yeah, the Warriors should have won this game. It was a lot closer than it should have been, but I mean, it's not. It's, I mean, you kind of expect this from the Warriors now. They're, you can tell they get pretty complacent um, when it comes to these games against very mediocre to poor teams um, in the second half because all they want to do is really Get to, the, get to the playoffs and then beat the teams that really matter. But uh, then their third game, and this happened just today, um, they beat the Brooklyn Nets 114 to 101. Um, I, they they played a pretty good first quarter. Uh, they led afterwards 35 to 19. And when I say pretty good, I know that score. It, it the score indicates that it was a lot a lot bigger of a gap than it felt like. The uh, the Nets just started off. They weren't shooting the ball well, but the Warriors were turning it over a bunch. And they were able to get going quickly. And I think they were had like 14 to 6 or 7 at one point. But then the Warriors came back and they rattled off a 25 to nothing run. And then they ended up leading at the end of the quarter, 35-19, which I already said. But uh, that third quarter run really started when Andre Godala, who I mentioned twice already, and then Jordan Bell came off the bench. Um, they provided a lot of energy. It was really... It was really good to see that because Jordan Bell wasn't very effective on the past road trip. Um, Steph was hitting shots. He hit two pretty deep threes. Um, but yeah, so they were leading after that After the first quarter. They shot like 70% while the Nets were shooting like 27.3. And they were, the Nets were bad from... That was 27.3 overall. They were shooting 16.7% from deep. To, they, were just, they, were, they were not good on offense and the Warriors were bailing them out early. Um, but in the second quarter... It was probably the worst worst quarter of basketball the Warriors have played this season, maybe even in the last two seasons. Um, the Warriors scored just 13 points. The ball wasn't moving. 
They're settling for contested threes instead of moving the ball in transition. And then because of that, they were turning the ball over as well. I think they turned the ball over 10 times in the quarter. Um, they allowed the Nets to get back into it, get a rhythm going. Um, it was super frustrating to watch if you didn't see it. Um, and the, the quarter started really, it was, the, it was the beginning of the quarter was why it was really as terrible as it was. Steve Kerr put out like, put up like the, I think probably the strangest lineup he's done all year with, uh, Katie, Draymond, Nick Young, Sean Livingston, and Andre Iguodala. Um, this is different than the normal second unit because David West is normally in there and Clay Thompson's normally in there, but it looks like he was trying to stagger minutes with Katie and Steph to maybe try to get ready to do that in the playoffs, which I'm fine with, but. Because David West was out, he had a assist on his arm slash rest. I don't really know a whole lot about the assist, cause, and I don't want to think too much about it because I've seen all the YouTube videos of assists and they're pretty gross. But yeah, the, the lineup was just terrible. They couldn't get anything going offensively. They were turning the ball over. Draymond was particularly bad in the first half. He was turning the ball over like it was his job and only job. He had five of the team's 12 turnovers in the first half. But, uh, and then... Yeah, because of those turnovers, the Nets were able to run in transition. But in the second quarter, really the difference with the Nets was that they stopped settling for threes. I think they took like 12 threes in the first quarter, and they they ended the second with like less than 20 combined, not just in the quarter. But they were forcing the ball into the paint and running in transition more, which is a lot more effective. But uh, in the third quarter, the Warriors started their offense through their new starting center, JaVale McGee. Um, he was doing it all, really, early in the second half. He threw down three quick dunks. He got a steal that led to a fast break in which he got another dunk on. Um, Bob Bob Fitzgerald, the Warriors announcer, called him a pterodactyl, which was it was interesting, to, <laughs> to say the least. Um, yeah, he was really good. Um, Steph came in, got a hot again. I think at the half, Steph had like 15 points or something. Might have been more than that, I don't remember. It was early today. I probably should remember, but uh, he had 17 points in the third quarter, and he ended the uh, ended the game with 33. But yeah, he was great. Um, but the Nets were still able to hang around because they were getting a great performance from their starting point guard, D'Angelo Russell, who was on the Lakers last year. He's been injured for most of this year, so no one's really said anything about him. Um, but yeah, he had 19 points at the end of the quarter. But bad news came came for the Warriors in that third quarter. In the end. Even though they were able to grab a lead, it was uh, it came with an injury, which was it was sad to see because it happened to Jordan Bell. And for for those of you who don't know, Jordan Bell had been out for like probably six weeks with a uh, sprain, really badly sprained ankle, which he had against the the Chicago Bulls. And he'd been back for four games, and this was like the first game he was like looking really compet- competent as well as confident, and he was ha- clearly having an impact. Um, but he went up and he blocked a shot, and then he fell. I think it was on Damari Carroll's leg. Damari Carroll's in the uh, the nets, um, and he he rolled it really badly. It was it was pretty gruesome. I I know the feeling because I have ankles made of paper at this point. Um, and he had to leave the game. He was very upset. He showed you how upset he was on the floor, on the court because he knew immediately when it happened. Um, he started pounding the floor and yelling and screaming. Um, yeah, it wasn't. It was sad to see, but uh, in the fourth quarter, after that injury, the Warriors came out. They got things started quickly on like a seven-one run, which they extended like a fifteen-three run. Um, and yeah, this quarter was basically just running out the rest of the game, just putting up some more points. Um, Draymond Green was able to get things going after a very rough, rough first half. 
Um, he had a nice running shot, um, and then a three, which was good because he'd been something for like seven for thirty-seven on threes in like the last like week or so, week or two or whatever. Um, and then Clay also was able to get going down the stretch. He finished the game with like eighteen points. I think he had eight in the first half, so he had like ten points in that fourth quarter. Um, and then the man who I've mentioned like six times already, Andre Godala, was also really good in the fourth quarter. He had like two breakaway dunks in like this in a span of like thirty seconds, which it was nice to see because having to be explosive and like actually like taking chances and driving to the hoop is something that was really desperately missing in those first like fifty games of the first half. But uh, yeah, Steph was the leading scorer for the Warriors. He had thirty-four. He had thirty-four points in thirty-three minutes. Uh, KD was the next highest scorer with nineteen. Uh, several other Warriors were right behind KD in scoring. Clay had eighteen. Draymond had sixteen, and Javale had twelve. Um, yeah, they hung on to win. They were able to come back from that uh, that Brooklyn run in the second quarter after the Warriors only put up thirteen points in like the worst quarter of the season. Uh, it was their fiftieth win of the year. Uh, so now they have the same amount of wins as the Rockets, who are a half game up on them in the West. And so that leads me to my next point, what I wanted to talk about, was uh, was the Houston Rockets and how there's a pretty big overreaction to how, how well they're doing right now. And I think the overreaction might not be as, as big an overreaction as I want it to be because clearly they kind of deserve some hype because they have 50 wins and they're currently sitting atop the Western Conference. But uh, I wrote an article about it this weekend, how we all need to take a step back and chill. Or when I say we, I mean you all, because I don't think the Rockets are as good as their record indicates. But uh, we need to take a step back and, you know, really observe the Rockets for what they are and uh, try to project what they can actually do in the postseason in, in terms of trying to beat the Warriors. So they have won 16 games in a row. Um. And so I'll, I'll get through some of the main points I talked about in the article, which you can find on the website, sportsball.com. That's sportsball with a Z. But uh, so basically, I dug into the numbers to try to figure out, like, what if it mattered to see who would really, if it would matter who had the one seed coming out of the West. And really, what, if it really mattered at all, any, any of the matchups at all, regardless of injury, um, if that would change the outcome. Because the way I see it, I don't think the Rockets have a chance. I think the Warriors are going to end up winning in either four or five games. Um, yeah. So getting into, the, getting into the article, what I wrote about was uh, I started off talking about home court advantage and how I didn't think it really mattered. Because right now, as we speak, or as it was on whatever it was, Saturday, the Rockets are 24 and 26 at home and 24 and 27 on the road. So they're nearly identical when they're at home and on the road. So that was one of the main points in terms of home court advantage really doesn't matter. And also the same thing goes for the Warriors because at home, the Warriors are 24-7, and seven, and on the road, they're 25-7. and seven. So the difference between both these teams is one win and one loss at home and on the road. So that really doesn't matter in terms of record, like, oh, they're better at home or they're better on the road. It doesn't matter. They're, they play the same regardless. But... It wouldn't really matter for the Rockets to have home court because if you look at it, if they did get home court advantage in those first two games, you, I don't think you could convince me that the Warriors wouldn't take one of those first two games. And if they did, that means home court is flipped and that the Warriors would then have home court because they'd be going back to their arena with a win already under their belt and they could just pick up two there and then they'd 
it's a complicated thing, but they'd have, they'd have home court again. Um, but the only real thing the Rockets would really need home court for is to stay out of Oracle Arena, which is, this objectively speaking here, I tried to be as objective as possible for the majority of the piece. Oracle Arena is one of the loudest, um, one, of the, one of the loudest arenas in, in professional sports, and especially in the NBA. Um, the fans get the loudest. Um, and the Rockets, frankly, don't have that. The Rockets, I don't think they sell out every game. They're what? I think they're like seventh in crowd size when it comes to like overall crowd size per game. Um, overall, so in both home and away arenas, people obviously show up to away arenas because they want to see the best teams in the NBA. But in just terms in terms of home, in their home arena, they're 16th when it comes to their crowd average crowd size. But that doesn't really matter in the playoffs because obviously if your team's good in the playoffs, your arena's going to sell out. And if you're playing another good team, your arena's still going to sell out. And in a potential series between the Warriors and the Houston Rockets, every game would be sold out. I don't think you have to worry about it. Unless maybe, as I think is going to happen, the Warriors end up getting home court because they have an easier schedule down the stretch. And the Rockets have a harder schedule. And then the Warriors end up winning both the first two games in Oracle by like 15 to 20 points. And then they end up being able to do what they did to Cleveland last year when they ended up going back there for like game three of the finals where they were able to hang in there and get a win. Then I think game four, people, it won't be as electric. But I don't know. The home crowd in Houston for basketball has never really been um, all that great. It's like their basketball is like their, their fourth sport in the city of Houston in terms of importance. Um, they've got the Houston Astros who just won the World Series. They've got the Houston Texans. Um, yeah, so I think they're third. But, um, yeah, so home court advantage really doesn't matter in this series. Um, but what really matters is, like, the difference in the way they play defense or the way they play offense. If you just want to look at it in terms of their scoring per game in the regular season, um, their defensive rating per game in the regular season, which both these teams are very close, but the Warriors still have an edge. So, again, this is me laying out groundwork for saying that the Rockets aren't going to beat the Warriors because, I don't know, nearly every major statistical category, the Rockets are worse. And, like, the only three they're better in is threes attempted per game, threes made per game, and, like, free throws attempted per game. And the three-pointers attempted per game is kind of because they run Mike D'Antoni's system, and it's, like, the most extreme version of the system where it's just if, if you're open on the three-point line, just throw up a three. I mean, that's basically how this is. It's basically how it works this year. Um, and the three-point makes per game, obviously, if you're taking, like, 53s a game, you're going to make a decent amount of them. The Warriors still make them at a higher percentage. Um, I think it's by, like, 4 or 5%. And they only take, like, 30 of them a game. Um, but also, they do. Rocket, the Rockets do deserve credit for this record because they have gotten a lot better as a team. And I, I feel like that gets swept under the rug a lot. And I don't want to be like completely just negative to warn them in this part, uh, as part of the podcast. But they are much improved on defense. So credit, credit, give more credit to do. But even with how much better they are on defense this year, which I think might be a mirage because I think in the playoffs everyone's going to regress to the mean is what they normally are because I don't think James Harden is going to be that concerned with his defense when his, his offense has traditionally been what's been bad in the playoffs. Um, their de- the defensive rating between these two teams, the Warriors and the Rockets, is very similar. The Warriors are fifth in the league right now with 103.4, while the Rockets are 
just behind them at 104.3. Yeah, so the difference right now is negligible. But the Warriors do have the advantage in the fact that they do lead the league in blocks per game. So I think their defensive rating right now is more of a... uh, it's really a show of like that they're bad on defense. That the more of a thing is Steve Kerr's messing with lineups, and uh, and they're complacent. The Warriors are complacent, especially in the first quarter and the fourth quarter, because they don't need to be particularly focused because they play a lot of bad teams right now. Um, but the thing with the Warriors is, and the thing that should make Rockets fans a little excited, is that the Warriors have given out a blueprint, b- blueprint this year as to how to beat them, and that's you got to force them to turn the ball over. And when I say you need to force him to turn the ball over, I mean you need to force a lot of turnovers. A lot. Um, when the Warriors turn the ball over like 16 or less times a game, they're nearly unbeatable. But when, you, when they turn it over 17 times, I think they're 11 and 8. 17 times or more, they're like 11 and 8. So they're basically a 500 team, um, which is still pretty good because they're the Warriors, but any other team turns the ball over like 17 times a game, they're going to be like 3 and 20. Um but yeah, and the Rockets just would need to force a bunch of turnovers if they even want to have a shot against the Warriors. But um, I don't see that really happening in the playoffs because every year, and you can look up the stats for this if you want, or you can just check it out in the article because I linked it. Um, but the Warriors' turnovers per game do go down in the playoffs, and they do refine things, especially when it's just on like one day of rest, which playoff games traditionally are. But uh, I don't want to bore you all too much with the numbers. I feel like I probably already have. But... Uh, the real argument here that I'm that I'm seeing a lot from uh, Houston Rockets fans or people who think that the Rockets are, are uh, have a real chance of beating the Warriors is that this iteration of the Houston Rockets is very different than anything it's been before. And I guess in the, in in some cases you're right. They've never had Chris Paul, who is a Hall of Fame point guard, but he's also very ball dominant in the playoffs. So you, you already had that in James Harden, who's very ball-dominant in the playoffs. But the difference between those two is Chris Paul's like six feet tall and is ball-dominant and doesn't shoot threes in the playoffs. He just shoots mid-range jumpers and dribbles up the shot clock, which is really against what Mike D'Antoni's system is. Um, while James Harden is, is going to play more with the system and shoot threes, but he's not going to shoot them as well in the playoffs, and that's been proven at this point. Um, another argument that I see from Rockets fans is, oh, my God. Have you seen their record when Clint Capella, James Harden, and Chris Paul all start? They're like 33-1. and one. Like, wow. <laughs> nice. Again, like, I think I've said this in, what, like, six out of the eight episodes, so forgive me because I'm going to say it again. I don't think that means anything. The Warriors started off the 2016 season with a 24-game winning streak, and they lost the finals. So all this talk about, oh, they're the first team to have multiple 14-game winning streaks in a single season. Whoa. Wow. They're 33-1 and one when they're quote-unquote big three, because I don't think Clint Capella is really in the, a big three caliber player, plays. They're so good. They're unbeatable. Like, wow. First of all, you're not playing the highest caliber teams in every game like you will be in the playoffs. You're playing in regular season games against the West. And certain teams in the West have been just riddled with injuries. And that's, that's a fact. And I, I know I'm grasping at straws here in terms of that argument. But the winning streaks really aren't that important. 
Because, I don't know, any team can really go on a winning streak in the regular season. I think the Utah Jazz just went on a winning streak of, like, 17 games. And they came back from being, like, 1-29, and or 11-29 and to be, like, 29-29, and now they're in the playoff picture again. It doesn't really matter that much, a regular season winning streak. Again, like I said before, just look back to 2016 at the Warriors. It doesn't really matter all that much. And then the other argument that I see, because and this one really kind of makes me upset, because it's just, it's delusional, and a lot of people who are making this argument seem to be just forgetting the obvious other side of it. It's like the argument that the Houston Rockets are going to beat the Warriors because they're led by two first ballot Hall of Famers. Two of them. Can you believe it? They've got two of them in the same lineup. Has that ever been done before? Um, has it? Can you tell me? Um, you can, because it has. Several times. Even recently. It happens all the time. You can, <laughs> Look at that. The original, the original super team with the Boston Celtics. Four Hall of Famers. Then the Heat, multiple Hall of Famers. Then the Warriors, four in their starting lineup right now. And you got several other teams who aren't even super teams with multiple Hall of Famers in their starting lineup. So the argument that you've got a Hall of Fame ball handler at all times in the court it doesn't is not that great, you know? Because uh, especially in terms of the Warriors, like I get two Hall of Famers as point guards against other teams in the West is nice because you're like, wow. Look how stacked we are. Two, we have two of them. They have none. But you have two Hall of Famers in your starting lineup? That's great. The Warriors literally have double the amount of Hall of Famers in their starting lineup. And I'll break it down for you so we can be extra clear about this. Stephen Curry is a two-time NBA MVP. It's first and only unanimous MVP in league history. Stephen Curry is also one of two players in NBA history to have more than 200 made threes in six consecutive seasons. You want to know who the other one is? The other player with uh, 200 made threes in six consecutive seasons? It's his teammate, Clay Thompson, who is arguably the second greatest three-point shooter in NBA history behind his teammate, Stephen Curry. Both those guys, first ballot Hall of Famers. You know who plays small forward for this team? Kevin Durant an MVP, a finals MVP, a four-time scoring champ, the youngest scoring champion in the history of the league. Do these guys sound like Hall of Famers to you? Because, I don't know, they sound like first ballot Hall of Famers to me. Draymond Green, also a defensive player of the year, as well as being one of the most versatile defenders or players in the entire NBA. All four of those guys are first ballot Hall of Famers. And they're all in the starting lineup. And so you look at that, and you look at the Rockets. The Rockets have two. The Warriors have four. But then you go to the bench because you got to have a bench in the playoffs because you can't just run your starting lineup the whole time like Mike D'Antoni likes to do because you're going to end up with a crumbling James Harden or a crumbling Chris Paul and one of them is going to get hurt and your team's going to go kaput and one of them is going to get hurt. And then the Warriors are going to have to put another asterisk next to their title because people are going to get mad and say that they basically cakewalked their way through it again even though they're going to do it, cakewalk their way through the West even without an injury to Houston. Um, you look to the bench, Andre Godala is another first ballot Hall of Famer. He's a finals MVP. He's been an All-Star like what, like six or seven times? Come on. 
They've also got guys like David West who could be in the Hall of Fame. Um, several guys. The Houston Rockets, they just picked up Joe Johnson. What's he, the, he, he could be in the Hall of Fame, maybe, off the bench. But I don't he's not going to play a whole lot because he's a ball stopper. He gets the ball, and it's a black hole in the three-point line. But, yeah, so just the, the argument that the Rockets have just so many Hall of Famers on their team is ridiculous because you're very clearly and obviously overlooking the fact that the Warriors have more than double the amount of Hall of Famers on their team. And so, I don't know. <laughs> I feel like a team with more Hall of Famers is better than the one with less. I don't know. Just in the grand scheme of things. And you want to know some more stats that's going to make them a better team than the Rockets? The, War- the Warriors are a better team than the Rockets? I'll read them off to you. The Warriors have the number one offensive rating in basketball this year. They have the fifth best defensive rating. They lead the league in net rating. They make the most shots per game, have the highest field goal percentage, highest three-point percentage, highest free throw percentage, and lead the league in blocked shots. And there are several other advanced category or advanced statistics category that they lead in. But that's eight right there, just off the top of my head. The Rockets lead the league in three of three major categories: three-point attempts, three-point makes, and free throws. And that's great. You can take all those threes you want against other teams, but you want to know something interesting about the Warriors, which I don't I just found this one out today because it's out in the Warriors broadcast. The Warriors lead the league in another category that's very interesting and that counters exactly what the Rockets' game plan is. They lead the league in blocked three-pointers. I think they have 55 this year. I don't even know what the next closest team has. Let me check. The next closest team has 22 the Warriors have blocked 55 threes, while the next closest team, the Bucks, have blocked 22. The Warriors are one of the best defensive teams in NBA history. And on the other side of that, because their defense is so good, they can run the ball back in transition, which normally doesn't really happen in the playoffs, but they can do it because their defense is able to take it up to a whole nother level. They're the best transition team in the league. It's a perfect combination. And they also have several guys who can bail them out. <laughs> this is this is a very rambly, very rambly segment. But uh, basically what I said in the article was that the Warriors are not going to lose to the Houston Rockets. I think the Warriors are going to sweep them, but apparently that's an unpopular opinion because people think the Rockets really have a chance. So maybe the Rockets can take a game, maybe two. But bottom line is the Warriors are winning that series if everyone is healthy on both teams. Um, James Harden bas- sat down in an interview on ESPN the other day, um, and the main quote that came out of it was that he said, this is our year. Um, which I thought was funny because uh, this kind of outwardly confidence that is displayed publicly doesn't generally work out well for the team that displays it. And you can just ask the Washington Wizards who have been doing that for years and who have never won anything in the history of ever. Um, but in response to the interview, Draymond Green had an interesting response, which I thought was really funny, and I really echo his sentiments. He said, noted. Great. We'll see you soon. And uh, they will. I think they'll probably meet in the Western Conference Finals, and the Warriors are going to beat them. Um, but yeah, I, uh, I am, I think that's it, but I, actually there's a couple more things I could say about this. Are we really going to play the charade every year that the Warriors are like with this super team that they currently have? Are we really going to do this? Because I really feel like this is the exact same thing that happened last year. Cause coming into this year, much like last, the end of the season felt like a foregone conclusion. Everyone thought that the Warriors were going to host the Larry O'Brien Trophy once again. They had Kevin Durant. Who's going to stop them? Wow. And then they won it, this, they won it that year, and then they come back like, wow. They could have a dynasty. They could, be, they could have a three-peat, a four-peat. Wow. Maybe Steph could end up with just as many rings as Michael Jordan. 
Could you, that, could you believe that? But then several teams are going to make acquisitions over the offseason that's going to make them better. They're going to it's not, those conversations realistically don't put them in the same conversation as the Warriors. But hey, over the course of an 82-game season, a team can get hot. Maybe their chemistry clicks and all of a sudden, wow. You all forget that the regular season basketball is way different than postseason basketball. This happened last year. <laughs> I went so delusional about how, the, how good the Rockets are. We forget that this exact same scenario happened last year. The Cavs were rolling in the first half. Then they picked up two guys, two guys who were supposed to be key guys who were going to take down the Warriors. You guys got Darren Williams. Whoa. That guy could have been an MVP back in, back in his heyday. He's going to run that second unit of the Warriors off the court. And then they picked up Kyle Korver. He's a good player, but people were saying that he was a better three-point shooter than anyone on Golden State other than Stephen Clay. But at a certain point, I think you have to really, really consider how realistic these championship dreams are if you're, if you're a fan of these other teams that aren't the Warriors right now. Like, you really think a signing of Joe Johnson midway through the year is going is to put you over the top? You know there's a reason he was available, right? There's a reason all these, all these buyout guys that you can sign for the minimum are available because they aren't good anymore. They're washed. Same thing happened with Darren Williams last year, like I said. Same reason that Dante Jones is always available for the Cavs to sweep up in time for the playoffs last year. Um, yeah, and then another thing. This isn't really exactly related to that point I just made. Um, the way the Rockets play defense and right now is by, uh, and the season really, it's not right now, it's their whole season. Um, they defend you by switching constantly, keep the offense off guard, and that works fine when you're switching on to subpar offensive players. But what's going to happen when James Harden is switching on to KD or Chris Paul ends up switching on to Clay or KD or Steph? I honestly cannot picture how the Rockets are going to take down the Warriors in four games out of seven. And again, I, if someone can explain it to me, you, you are more than welcome to. Comment sections are open on the podcast. Comment down below on the website. Explain to me why the Rockets are going to win. I would love to hear it. I honestly can't see a single way that the Rockets could win if everyone is healthy. Maybe they get hot for a game like Cleveland did last year in that game four where they hit a historic number of threes. They set the record for most threes in a finals game in order to win one game against the Warriors. I think that's the kind of situation you end up in with the Rockets this year. We're all just so delusional about the fact that, that whoa, they have 50 wins. Whoa, they have fourteen or two different 14-game win streaks. We all need to take a step back and chill. Wow, I, I could have made this a Slow Your Roll segment. We could have had episode two of Slow Your Roll. But uh, no, I, I don't have good uh, foresight. But uh, so from going to the playoffs to uh, the exact opposite, we're going to talk a little bit about Tankapalooza 2018, which is about, it's the story of the year for about a third of the NBA teams right now. So for those of you who don't know, tanking is when you purposely lose games or purposely put a bad team on the court to try to lose games so you can try to get a better position in the draft to land the number one overall pick. Uh, the team right now winning Tankapalooza, ball, Tankapalooza is the Memphis Grizzlies, who are by far the worst team in the league right now. But uh, today... On March 6, 2018, the NBA took action, or at least they started to. Uh, they issued a warning to the Chicago Bulls, who've been taking all year. Um, they have just 21 wins. Um, 
They issued a warning that basically said it'd be in their best interest to avoid resting their older, more established players when they are healthy. Um, basically, stop stop throwing games by putting young guys who aren't ready to play in the NBA in games late. <laughs> Why don't you actually put out a good effort for your fans is what they're basically saying. Um, I think the warning's good. I hope it's just the beginning because, frankly, tanking is awful. I think it creates a bad TV product, which hurts the NBA's revenue. Um, but also, there isn't real proof that tanking is that effective. I think really, in recent memory, there's only been one time that it's been really successful, and that's with the 76ers. I mean, that was a really, really long, like, just grueling rebuild. But you take a look at other teams like Orlando, Phoenix, Sacramento, Brooklyn. When was the last time they were good? How long have they been tanking? They have nothing. None of them have anything. Maybe the Phoenix, oh, they have Devin Booker now. They traded for Alfred Payton, but that's not part of the tanking. None of those teams are good, and they're not going to be good for a while. Um, I think NBA lottery reform, which they do every year, is a good thing because in the end it's going to create less of an incentive to tank. Um, and if more teams are good with a higher level of competition, then the league is better and more people are going to watch. Um, yeah, that's really it. All, all I wanted to say about tanking. I don't want to give attention to teams that purposely lose games. But uh, So now we should take a look at the uh, rest of the playoffs or west of the rest of the seating out west in the playoffs because it's actually a very interesting thing that's happening right now in the west because the east is uh, pretty cut and dry with it at least right now but uh the th- the seeds the number three through eight seeds are all less than three games apart and right now it's a very real possibility that the oklahoma city thunder could end up missing the playoffs yeah. How funny would that be? I think I'd throw a party if they miss the playoffs. That'd honestly be probably one of the funniest things that happened in the NBA this year. Um, their upcoming schedule is just absolutely brutal. Um, they're currently in seventh place in the West. Just one game up on the Rock on the Nuggets, who are in ninth. So if they lose one game, the Nuggets win one game, they could be out of the playoffs. Wouldn't it just be hilarious if the Thunder, who added two perennial All-Stars slash All-NBA players, were worse than they were last year? You know what's really funny? And this is right now. It's not necessarily related to the end of the playoffs or whatever happened at the end of the year. The Indianapolis Pacers, or Indiana Pacers, who the Thunder got Paul George from and sent Victor Oladipo and Demontis Sabonis, who I was told were basically scarecrows last year, the Pacers have a better record than the Thunder do right now. The Pacers are 37 and 27, while the Thunder are 37 and 29. Isn't that kind of funny? Um, Oladipo's an MVP candidate. Westbrook's not. Paul George isn't. Carmelo Anthony isn't. <laughs> oh. um, there are several common denominators, though, with the. With this year's Thunder team, last year's Thunder team. But uh, when it comes down to like why neither one of these Thunder teams have been all that great, the most, the most prevalent of the common denominators is Russell Westbrook. And I don't think there's a, a legitimate counter-argument at this point. He makes his teammates worse. It's undisputable. His ball dominance is a detriment to his team. There was a, I, 
and they played the OKC Thunder played the Rockets and the Rockets won today on uh, on TNT. But TNT pulled up a stat that was I've never seen it before, and it was is probably the most interesting stat I've seen all year across the entire NBA. And it talks about it just tell it's a very telling stat about Russell Westbrook's ball dominance and how it affects his team. And here it is. When, when Russell Westbrook takes 17 or less shots in a game, his team is 14-2 and two when he takes 17 or less shots. That doesn't seem like too hard of a thing when you're the third worst shooter in your team or the third best shooter in your team. If you take 17 or less shots, come on. His team is 14-2 and two when that happens. When he takes more than 17 shots, which he should never do because, again, he's not even the third best shooter in his team. When he takes 17 or more shots... His team is 22 and 25. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> That's horrible. Can, can someone explain to me how he could be nearly 60 games into this whole quote unquote OK3 experience and still have no real chemistry with any other of those new stars? It's absurd. He and Paul George don't really have any chemistry. It's all really forced. Remember his selling... Remember... <laughs> someone asked him about the selling point of making sure Paul George should stay at o- in Oklahoma City Thunder after this year because he's a free agent and he can leave. And he said, I don't need to make a pitch to him. We're going to win a championship. And that's going to be the pitch. That's the best pitch you can have. Are you going to win the championship, Russell Westbrook? Are you really? Your team's in seventh in the West. Your, teams are, your team is 22 and 25 when you do... When you do best, when you are taking an absurd amount of shots to put up as many points as you can to get the best looking triple double you can, your team is 22 and 25. Come on. He's not, and Russell Westbrook isn't even the best player on that team. Neither is Paul George, and neither is Carl Melo Anthony. I think they're, all three of those guys are tremendously overrated. You know who's the best player on that team? Steven Adams, their center. He's, I think, the best offensive rebounder in the game right now. He's probably the most dominant force inside the paint, or at least he would be if he was on any other team. If he's on any other team, he's a perennial all-NBA player and an NBA all-star. Easy. That guy's like seven feet tall and he's unguardable to paint. It, he, it's really, it's, it's actually really fun to watch him, and I hate it because he's on one of the teams I hate the, hate the most in the entire league. Um, but yeah, wrapping up uh, what I want to talk about with the Western Conference playoffs. We'll leave Russ Westbrook alone for now so we can go toil and uh, toil away as he gets more triple-doubles. Um, there are two other particularly interesting teams right now in the West, and that's the Pelicans and the Trailblazers, who are in the third and fourth seed. And so what I said last year, because I talked about MVP candidates and how Anthony Davis was creeping up as a, as a dark horse, I said if his team could get in like fourth or fifth seed, then I think he could win it. His team is now in the fourth seed. And he's still putting up like 39, 40 points a game without Boogie Cousins. He's been having the most insane games that I've seen in the last like two years. And no offense to James Harden, who's more consistent than uh, Anthony Davis because he doesn't get injured like every other game. But um, I honestly think Anthony Davis has a much bigger impact than James Harden does. How come James Harden doesn't get the same treatment that like Kevin Durant did when he left uh, the Warriors? James Harden's playing with another Hall of Famer now. Doesn't that take away from what he's doing a little bit? Right? Am I crazy? But, uh, yeah. 
So the Pelicans are in the fourth seed, which is really crazy because they lost um, DeMarcus Cousins. But the Blazers are in the third seed. And you know why they're there? They're in the third seed because Damian Lillard's just been absurd the last, like, three weeks. The last, like, two, his last, like, two games, I think he's put up 39 points in both games. Today against the Knicks, he hit eight of 11 threes. Those are Steph Curry-like numbers from, like, the first MVP year. I think Damian Lillard has a legitimate case to be MVP. I think if James Harden, if the Rockets aren't in first place by the time the season ends in the West, if they're if they're not in that one seed, I think Damon Lillard should be that MVP. If he manages to keep the Trailblazers from third and separate from the rest of the pack while doing so, because like I said, the six, the three through eight seeds are all packed right together. But if Damian Lillard can separate the Trailblazers from the Pelicans, and there's like a five or six game difference by the end of the year, I think Damian Lillard should absolutely be getting MVP votes, especially if he's playing the way he has. They look dangerous right now. Not to the Warriors, because, I don't know, they've played in like three of the last four postseasons, and the same results has happened every time. But uh, I think, yeah, that's it for the that's it for the NBA. I've talked to the NBA for way too long for today. <laughs> so uh, we'll cut the rest short. We'll get, we'll get more in-depth with NFL and, NBA and MLB. Next week, I just wanted to briefly touch on some stuff for the NFL Combine, which was this weekend. Um, I was impressed by a lot of guys, and there were several guys who were who were – Disappointments, to say the least. Like that one running or that one uh, offensive guard who was like the worst combine in in history. I don't remember his name, obviously. But um, two guys who impressed me. One was Saquon Barkley, out of Penn State. He just dominated the combine. He's a running back. He ran a four four forty yard dash. He did twenty nine reps on the bench and had a vertical jump of forty one inches. And coming into this, he was already the top running back in the draft. But his showing at the Combine got people thinking of taking him number one overall. Which I think is kind of absurd. I wouldn't take a running back at first overall because you don't know exactly how the game translate. <coughs> how the game translates to the uh, NFL because you really running backs are make or break on a really good offensive line. And odds are if you're in the top five of the uh, or anywhere that you would realistically be able to draft him in the top five or six, you're not going to have a really good offensive line. Um and you can look at Ezekiel Elliott as an outlier because he came to the league and had the best offensive line in football. But uh, yeah, I don't think I don't think it's smart taking Saquon Barkley number one overall. I think if he manages to stick around by number four when Cleveland gets their second pick, then I would definitely hope that they would take him just for their sake. Because um, yeah, there's just way too many good young quarterbacks in this draft, and way too many teams that really need a good young quarterback um, for running back to go, to go that high. But uh, the other player who was really impressive to me was Shaquille Griffin. Um, he was the centerpiece of that UCF defense last year, and he was on. And that UCF team was the only undefeated team in Division One college football. Um, argument can be made that they should have been playing in the college football playoffs last year. I definitely think they should have been. But um, he was impressive for many reasons, and one of those which was he did everything he did with one hand. He doesn't. He doesn't have his other hand. I think he lost. He lost it to a genetic disease as a kid. But <coughs> he ran the fastest forty-yard dash time by a linebacker since two thousand. Since two thousand three, at four point three eight. That's absurd. That's faster than Ezekiel Elliott, arguably the best running back in football. Julio Jones, arguably the best 
wide receiver in football, and Richard Sherman, a Hall of Fame quarterback or cornerback. He also did 20 reps of the bench press with one hand. The other arm was connected to a prosthetic grip for balance, but still, one hand did 20 reps. Um, and I don't know. I know I did said that I don't think Saquon Barkley should be taken as high as I think he will be because I wouldn't. I don't trust running backs taking that high. But I think Shaquille Griffin, I think a team might have to take him high. And I think the farther down he falls, the more dangerous he's going to be. I mean, think... Who are the best guys in the NFL? Think about it. The guys who come in with a massive chip on their shoulder. They get drafted lower than they thought they would. They've been disrespected all their lives or whatever happened, you know. Like the Tom Brady thing. Tom Brady has the massive chip on the shoulder because he was drafted in the last round. This guy's been looked down on upon all his life. He's been his one hand, for God's sake. He's got the biggest chip on his shoulder that anyone could probably have and play in the NFL. He seems like a success story waiting to happen. I think that he could be a legitimate superstar as a middle linebacker in the NFL. I might be crazy. I might be I might be totally wrong, but I think he could be. I'm excited to see him play. Um, there's a reason that defense and that UCF team went undefeated, and he was a big part of it. Um, but, yeah, I don't, I don't really watch much of the combine. I don't really put too much stock in it. Um, outside of the combine, though, free agency is right around the corner. So we'll, I, we'll break down all the, ha- all the signings that happen in the coming weeks as it happens. But I wanted to take a quick look at Kirk Cousins because he's the most sought-after quarterback in the market, and deservedly so. He's been, I think he's been really good for the last couple of years. Um, and he deserves a big contract because he's been franchise-tagged by the Redskins for like five or six straight, not five or six, but like two or three years now. But uh, reportedly, there are four teams that have the most interest and are willing to get in the bidding war to land him. And those four teams are the Denver Broncos, New York Jets, Minnesota Vikings, and Arizona Cardinals. Now, two of those teams would sound appetizing to me as, just as a football fit if I'm Kirk Cousins. And those are the Denver Broncos and the Minnesota Vikings. Denver Broncos have had a great defense, and that, that defense might be nearing the end of its run soon. And they also have decent weapons around him on offense. Because if they sign Kirk Cousins, then they can draft a running back, which is a position that they needed last year. I think they have a decent enough off- offensive line. They've got good weapons on the outside, like Emmanuel Sanders, Demarius Thomas. Um, and they've got a really good defense, and he could put them over the top. And he might not have to sign their long term because I think John Elway might know that the team might be blown up in a couple of years. But they could have a chance to compete for Super Bowl as early as next year if he signs with the Denver Broncos. I hear they're far back in the... Uh, of those four teams, they're the least likely to sign him right now. But, I mean, they were also, I think, not among the favorite to sign Peyton Manning, and they got him. But uh, the other team that I would go to, just for a pure football fit, if I'm Kirk Cousins, is Minnesota. Because I think I think they're super a very good quarterback away from winning Super Bowl. They nearly made it this year with Case Keenum. All due respect to Case Keenum, he made one of the most incredible plays in Vikings playoff history with that Minnesota miracle. But, uh... He's not an elite quarterback like Kirk Cousins could be. And there are so many weapons around him in the Minnesota team. If he signed there, you got um, yeah, Stephon Diggs. You got Dalvin Cook coming back, and you got Adam Thielen. And you had Kirk Cousins that, along with that, uh, that defense. I think they could be Super Bowl contenders next year. And then obviously you look at the Cardinals and the, and the Jets. For other reasons, the Jets reportedly are willing to offer him $60 million in his first year of his contract which is absurd, but hey, if you, if you after the money and you just, you want that after several years of toiling with the Redskins, I get it. 
But uh, the Cardinals are not going to be good. I wouldn't go to them. They're in a division now with the Seahawks, who Pete Carroll's a really good coach, and I wouldn't. I don't doubt what he can do with that team, especially as long as he has Russell Wilson. Um, and then you got the Rams, who are up and coming young team, and you got the Niners and Kyle Shanahan, the Super Bowl Fifty Three champions. So, I don't know if I was him. If I was Kirk Cousins, I'd go to Minnesota. My backup would be Denver. But uh, yeah, I, I we'll break down more of this NFL free agency stuff as it happens because. It have, I think it starts in like a couple weeks, and there are so many free agents, and it's it's really big class, especially in terms of like wide receivers and stuff. That uh, it take way too much time for this podcast that I've already spent a whole lot of time doing today, at least talking about the NBA. I think I talked about it for nearly an hour. Um, so yeah, that's it for the NFL for me. Um, anything for the MLB that I really want to talk about? Uh, no. Not really. I mean, Tim Linscom officially completed his his uh, signing with the Rangers. He passed his physical. He's going to be wearing number 44 to honor his brother, who passed away, I think it was last week. Um, the Giants, have, I think they're leading the league in spring training home runs, which is very funny to me because they were the worst home run inning team in the major leagues last year. And it was it was terrible to watch. But, I mean, if they could transfer this to the regular season, if Rob Manfred finally got the uh, the word to send those juice balls to San Francisco, I'm all for it. I would love to see Brandon Bell hit 30 home runs. Been waiting for it. I'd love to see it happen. But, uh, yeah, there's not really much to talk about with the uh, MLB. Because, again, it's like week two of spring training, and pitchers are only throwing like three innings at a time, four innings at a time. Uh, so we'll get more into that next week. And then the week after that, um, I want to – Introduce the introduce the baseball coverage that we're gonna that I'm gonna do on the website for the coming year, um, and we'll get into that next week and the week after that. So, yeah, I think that's all all I got for this ep- episode of the Sportsball.com podcast. This was episode eight. Um, if you've been listening for these two months, I appreciate you. Uh, if you enjoy this podcast, you want to hear more from me, check out my website, Sportsball.com with a Z. S-P-O-R-T-Z-B-A-L-L dot com. And uh, thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.